You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. You've now tuned in to the Drawing Board Podcast, a powerful, thought-provoking discussion where we talk about family, relationships, ministry, community, and career. Let's see what exciting guests we have on our show today. Welcome to the Drawing Board Podcast. This is the founder and host, Andre Ebron. And you know what I always say, today is a great day for you to manifest what it is that you believe. We are in the midst of closing out the sixth month of the year. Uh, I have already told you all with Relaunch 2020 at the beginning of this month that 2020 is not over. Uh, The best is yet to come. I know that a lot of us have had to traverse through a lot of uh, rough terrain. We have had some family experiences, some professional experiences. Some of us are still yet enduring some of those things. But I just have the earnest hope and conviction that things are definitely going to get better. It just means that some of us have to go back to the drawing board. The drawing board is a thought-provoking, powerful podcast that challenges you as the listener to examine your life and to reimagine the possibilities. Here's a quote I'd like to loft uh, for the discussion tonight. Have you exhausted all of the possibilities that exists within your current opportunity. I always promise you quality information from quality guests, and tonight is no different. I want to first give a a special shout out to our sponsors, Ebron & Associates, a consultancy that consults and develops and supports personal, professional, organizational transformation, and to the Viger Group, to Darius Wally Richburg McCaskill, who always, he's the principal consultant there, who always makes sure that he is donating and investing in social causes that advances the humanity in a direction that values, that legitimizes, that includes, and that validates every human as being important. Well, tonight on the show, I have my brother, my friend, my colleague, Dr. Christopher Allen Rogers. Welcome to the show, my brother. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Ebron. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's good yes, to be sir. Good to be Absolutely. here. Well, you know, we have uh, been knowing each other the last two years, but we've gotten uh, uh, the ability to get to know each other especially well uh, over the last six months. Uh, we were going through a class for aspiring leaders uh, in equity, diversion, and, and include, uh, not diversion, but uh, diversity and inclusion. Man, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. You are a multifaceted, dynamic brother with a a myriad of experiences to bring to the table. So let me let me introduce you to the people, brother. Uh, So Dr. Christopher Allen Rogers is employed with Detroit Public Schools Community District in the role of dean of culture and is also an associate professor at Baker College of Allen Park, located in Allen Park, Michigan, and an adjunct professor at Henry Ford College in Dearborn, Michigan. Wow, that's a mouthful, brother. You got your plate full. (laughs) Full. (laughs) Yes, sir. So you graduated from an HBCU from the Southern University and A&M College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism in 1991. You received your master's degrees from the Southern University in 92 in mass communications, and you received a doctorate of philosophy and management 
in organizational leadership from the University of Phoenix in 2013. You are a very accomplished brother. Let me ask a question. What is the percentage of African-American um, people, but specifically African-American men that hold a doctorate? You know, uh, the percentage of doctoral, the percentage of people who hold a PhD worldwide, worldwide is only 2%, right? So it has to be, I would say probably less than 1%, probably less than 0.5% uh, of African-American males who hold a PhD. Um, I would well, say, that, um, that, That's amazing. And that's going to become very important in our discussion later on. So I, I just want to give them the full breadth of what you've been accomplished, man. So you hold, you hold graduate certificates in management consulting, leadership in higher education from Capella University in 2016 and 2018. I also know you are a certified life coach as well, right? Yeah, I'm a certified life coach. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you've worked within the classroom as a teacher for over 10 years, teaching grades six through eight, nine through 12, in technology integration uh, for Edison schools, conducting PDs for teachers and for four years, and, and you've received an award, Teaching Excellence Award in 2017 from Baker College. So let me ask you a question. Let's, let's, let's just jump. We do understand that the world is in a position of unrest. Uh, the world is in the position of transitioning, confronting. It's, uh, it's almost like uh, airing your dirty laundry uh, you, on the clothesline, uh, being able to see all the spots, the blemishes, the inequities that exist within this time. Uh, what is your position particularly on how do we change? What are main areas that we should be focusing on right now? Because there's a lot of things that need to be corrected. But what are the main areas that we should be focusing on? And then how do we begin? Where do we start? So, you know, I, I've given a lot of thought to that. And that's a, that's a very good question. So I think as a community, I think we we are are in a, in a twofold situation. I think the first situation, we are trying to free ourselves of the oppression and the mar uh, marginalization that has come um, with being African-American people, uh, making sure that we have the right opportunities that we're giving, we're given, you know, the right chance to, to do, to do, to do, make the right career moves and so forth. And then on the other end, there is the cleaning of our own house. Um, and then how does this look for our community, once the protests are over, once the smoke is clear, once the signs go down, what does this look like as a community? Are we more unified or are we still divided within our own community? Are we marginalizing and oppressing, oppressing ourselves as a community uh, opposed to the oppression and marginalization that comes from the outside? So we're getting hit from both sides, in my, in my opinion. Um, I would like to see us after this, I would like to see us um, become more unified, um, you know, become more whole in regards to respecting our community, respecting our women, uh, taking care of our children, protecting our families, protecting each other, um, those kind of things, as opposed to what we have been doing historically um, before the unfortunate tragedy, tragedy that happened with George Ford uh, and, and many others, Breonna Taylor and many others. Absolutely. Now, when we talk about unity, because unity has within it um, an imagery, right? It has a look, uh, but it looks different for everyone, right? So unity, in my eyes, a lot of it um, has to do with everyone handling their respective responsibilities. 
Uh, and when you handle your responsibility and I handle my responsibility and we're headed in the same direction, that unifies us. Uh, when you're able to, able to carry your, your share of the weight and I'm able to then, it, it lightens my burden, uh, I call that, you know, respective unity. What does unity look like in your eyes for the African-American community? You know, it, it looks like supporting our own businesses. It looks like um, the decrease in crime. Um, it looks like um, supporting each other, pulling each other up, giving each other employment opportunities. Um, you know, those, all of those things. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame. I remember growing up. And when I was growing up on the corner of Roseland and Elmhurst, Grand River was full of businesses. There was Cancellation Shoe Store. There was Federal's. There was Sears. Many of the stores that were there after a while were Black-owned stores. And they went out of business simply because we decided we wanted to drive past those things because we thought we could get a better product or better service outside of the city limits. And, And to this day, we will exhaust a Internet search or exhaust a, a commute um, to get a service or a product uh, outside of our proximity just because we don't want to support our own businesses. We need to do that more. Many of us have become entrepreneurs. We become our own business people. And, and we are capable of delivering adequate service and adequate products to our own community. So I, I think part of the unification is building our own businesses back up, being in positions where we can hire um, each other, when I left to go to college in 86, there were Black-owned gas stations in Detroit. I can't count on one hand how many Black-owned gas stations are in the city of Detroit now. So there are communities outside of the African-American community that supports each other. They support each other's businesses. They employ each other. They mentor each other. They do these things. So when I talk, when I talk about unification, I'm talking about bringing up, establishing our culture where we are establishing business, professional be, uh, hiring each other professionally and doing all those things. It's very important. It's very important. That's, it, it is important. And you have, or we have the perfect opportunity to shape the minds of the young people uh, serving as a Dean of Culture and Climate for DPSCD. Uh, serving as a <laughs> Dean, job. yeah, serving, <laughs> serving as a Dean um, during this time of COVID-19, uh, racial un- unrest, inequities, et cetera, uh, what has been most rewarding and what has been most challenging for you? You know, one of the most rewarding things I think for me is that even during this, even during this crisis, um, I have students who make, make earnest attempts to reach out and say, Hey, you know, I miss you. I want to check on you. I'm like, well, I'm, t- I'm, I'm checking on you. Like no, I'm checking on you too. I want to make sure you're okay. Are you okay? Um, I had a student say, listen, Dr. Rogers, you know, I know you're older. So, and I know this disease affects older people. So I want to make sure that, that you know that you're, that you're safe. Have you been tested? I mean, the, the student took me through a, a myriad of questions and I was like really touched by that because it was genuine, authentic concern for my well-being. Uh, I think that's probably one of the, the most rewarding things because it lets me know that when school was in session and I was on the ground that I was doing my job and they appreciated that because they appreciated Chris Rogers, the person as well as Dr. Rogers, the dean. That's good. So you differentiate there, or you delineate there, Chris Rogers, the person, Dr. Rogers, the dean. Uh, How how are you able, or in what way uh, does that present in a school community where you're able to 
maintain a line of professionalism, but still connect to your students in an authentic way that engenders a relationship of trust. How do you, sure. how, do, yeah, how do you, how do you do that? Because uh, I just got off of a call or a show where we were talking about how some parents are now home with their children and they're realizing that both the child doesn't really know them and that they don't really know their child. So if a parent was listening, teachers that are listening, uh, principals, professionals, educators, what do you think are the components of a healthy relationship between teacher and student, dean and student, administrator and staff? What, what are the components of a healthy relationship? You know, I, I think it starts with honesty and transparency, right? And those words are not synonymous. I know we like to use them as being synonymous, but they're really not. You know, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, honesty, when I'm honest with you, I'm, I'm expressing something to you that you just really don't know, right? Transparency for me is I'm just verifying for you what you already see, what you've already bear witness to. You know, you see it yourself, but you need that validation or that verification from me. So that's a level of transparency. I think I operate with that probably 90% of the time. I make a really concerted effort to do that. You know, one of the things that was important to me when I got hired in this role, and I and I really, you know, I interviewed like seven times. Um, and when I was hired, one of the things I wanted to do was really allow the student body to know who Chris Rogers, the person was. Um, because sometimes people get caught up on titles and Chris Rogers, the person um, is a different person than Dr. Rogers, the dean. I mean, you know, in terms of titles. Um, so knowing who they are, calling them all by their name, we have about five, over 560 students. I probably know 90, 98% of them by first name and last name. I know their parents. I make that concerted effort because I view them as students, but also they're the reason why I have a job. So if you look at it from a, from a business economical standpoint, without them, I don't exist. So they are my customers. They deserve a, a lot of equity. They deserve a lot of respect. Um, they deserve follow up and follow through. So all those things that I can give them. And, and I think by doing that on a consistent basis, I think is what got me to this point where I'm getting calls to say, or I'm getting emails to say, hey, we're concerned about you. We want to make sure you're okay. And, and, and it's a gratifying feeling. You know, it, it, it really is. It was worth the 53 years that it took for me to get to this point. Oh, great. And what, what has been most challenging during this time as far as being a dean? You know, um, there are some students that unfortunately I haven't been able to connect to um, just because they have just they're off the radar. Um, you know, we call their house. We make that concerted effort to call them. We don't get an answer or the number changed um, and or the number was disconnected. So, you know, and you try to limit the amount of interact interaction on social media. So, you know, at some point you just lose contact with them. And there are a lot of them that, you know, I do think about and worry every day because I spend a lot of time with them in school, you know, in terms of redirection or in terms of just providing uh, some insight and things like that. So since I can't do that and I haven't spoken to them, that's a concern for me. Absolutely. Um, especially uh, when we talk about this time, the buzzwords that you're hearing uh, in regards to education, they're talking about educational, uh, not just equity, but educational equality. Uh, they're talking about the, the disparity between uh, funding, 
serving communities specific to Detroit. And so when I when I say the word equity for you, what does that mean as it relates to the students that you serve every day? For me, it means, you know, obviously, you know, making sure that everybody um, gets the same opportunity. Um, regardless of what their economic, social economic situation is, regardless of what, what their parent relationship is, um, regardless of all those factors that, that we both know does play a role in their in their attention, in their focus, um, you know, and, and, and in their achievement. It, it really does play a role. Um, what we serve as, and the hard thing about being an educator is we can spend 8.5 hours a day and we work very hard in redirecting and mentoring and teaching and all of that. And then at three o'clock when the bell rings, we know that our day is going to start all over. It's like Groundhog's Day sometimes. And then every now and then, you know, the light comes on and you're like, hey, I made an achievement. And sometimes sometimes it could take, it could take months, right? But th- again, this is an opportunity. And I've discussed this with you before. This is an opportunity that I pray for. And I always say, when you pray for things, you have to be open and receptive to receive that blessing. You don't know how it's going to come. You don't know when it's going to come. So when this blessing came to me, I was fully prepared to receive it. And I just marched forward every single day. And I try to do the best that I can do, honestly. That's good. So as a champion in education, both um, at the college level and club level, uh, how can somebody who's listening to you right now uh, engage in making the educational opportunities and process for students in Detroit? How can they jump in and help it help and help the educational environment be more equitable for our students? Like what can people do who are listening? You know, one of the things that we talk about in higher ed all the time is not limiting the resources that students have in the classroom to be able to achieve, uh, you know, in K through eight, the limitations are cell phones. Well, you know, in college, most of my students in my, in my classroom have an iPhone and they bring it as opposed to bringing a laptop because it's convenient. They don't have to worry about plugging it up, charging it, you know, the, the bulk of it all. So they can do everything on their iPhone that they can do on their iPad or their, or their computer. So Wait, just let me interrupt there. Sure. Uh, I am an Android user. Shout out to all the Androids. Oh, all so right. am I. So yeah. Yeah, look, look, look. <laughs> no, I, I, just had, I just had to throw that in there. Yeah. I, I've never been an I've never been a uh, uh, iPhone person. But I, I'm not talking about the hardware of it. I'm talking about the actual application and use of it. So, so at this point, what we need to do, and, and it's a process, and it's going to take some time. But I think we need to learn how to integrate the use of of, of these mobile devices into what we're doing in the room. Because if they if they could navigate with it, as opposed to just going on Snapchat and t- Snapchat and TikTok and Facebook, but they could actually do assignments and use Teams and other things like that very fluidly, they wouldn't be as frustrated as as they are. And you know, in higher ed, the 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 difference is they can use the device. But many of them prefer to take on-ground classes. So now they've been forced to take online classes. And navigating Blackboard or Canvas or Moodle or whatever the, the, the LMS is, the learning uh, management system, is, is very difficult for a lot of students um, because they like that face-to-face, on-ground interaction. So online learning in higher ed sometimes is a challenge. But in K-12, 
we are stifling that growth by not allowing students to bring the device in the room and constructively learning how to integrate it into the curriculum. It is absolutely ridiculous that we're not doing that. And we under, we see now how that's impacted us. We see it. And we need to learn from these mistakes as educators. We keep making these mistakes, but we're not learning from them. And, and unfortunately, the only person that suffers is the child when we don't learn from children when we don't learn from these mistakes. That's good. And I'm going to ask you a loaded question to which you can't sure. please fit. Sure. Here's the question. Are we as educators preparing our children for the world as it was, or are we doing a sufficient job for preparing our children for the world as it will be? You know, education is, is, is dynamic, um, meaning that it is constantly evolving and changing. And, and, and which is why from generation to generation to generation, you may see a higher academic aptitude and a lower social skill aptitude. And then in this generation, you may see a higher social skill aptitude and a lower academic aptitude. And that is because education as a whole is a dynamic entity. It changes because it's a trendy entity. So it jumps on board, whatever the wave is. You know, I remember at one point we were doing exit skills that lasted for about a year. That's done. Um, so a lot of things that we come up with because it's the new thing to do. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't stick with it. So, you know, and, and, and then the, 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 and I don't, I don't, I'm a parent, so I don't, I don't shun on parents at all, but, but the parent involvement over the last 20 years that I've been an educator, you know, has somewhat declined. There's an involvement in what I call non-super, the superficial things and not on the things that matter. Um, so when you, when I see you, I see you because of, of material things or things like phones and stuff like that, but I'm not seeing you. We can have an hour conversation about a cell phone, but we're not talking about why this person has three Fs. So I want to get to that because when I have you in front of me, I need to maximize all the time that I have to benefit your child academically. That's what's most important. Absolutely. Here, here's the thing. And you, you know, I am a proponent of parental involvement. It changes the game. Uh, home is the first place of learning. Parents are the first teachers, et cetera. I've, I operate by that philosophy wholeheartedly. Here's a question that I was asked of by an educator who was a parent uh, that has children in a suburban school district. And they said there was a full like auditorium of parents who came for the parent night. And so they had all these parents galvanized in this one place but they did not mobilize them toward any task. And so the person literally was like, what was the point of me taking time out of my day to come for the parental involvement, which would it be for us, the PTO or the PTA? Uh, what is the relevant activity that parents are being asked to engage in during this time in the educational environment? No, we don't know. And that's why when we call them, we waste their time. Um, because we really don't know. And, and they know sometimes that we don't know, which is why they don't show, <laughs> you know, and, and it's rather unfortunate. Anytime that we engage people, you know, after work hours to come into the building, you know, we need to have a plan and it needs, for, first of all, school has to be a welcoming place for everybody. Okay. For, everybody, for everybody who's connected to it should feel welcome when they walk in the door. Okay. 
they should feel welcome. And the level of service um, that's rendered, uh, customer service that's rendered at a school in this particular day and age, in this particular climate, when we are facing serious enrollment issues, schools are closing, um, the customer service needs to be A1. It needs to be the best that it can be. Because understand, nowadays, when people leave and take their kids out of school, they're taking their kids out of school because they're tired of the poor customer service that they're getting when they call and ask questions and when they send emails and they get responded to, or when they, when they have issues with the teacher because the teacher wants to be, um, um, you know, uh, aggressive or defiant or whatever the case may be. So they're like, hey, I don't need to deal with this. It's like, if, I, if all I need was McDonald's in my small town, I have to eat it. But guess what? They just opened Burger King. So I'm going to try Burger King just because it's here, whether I like it or not, because I'm just tired of you. And, and unfortunately, you know, that's kind of what happens. Um, I think that we can do a really better job if we make school for a lot of parents. I mean, if you survey them, survey most parents and ask them, when I walk into the building, do I feel welcome? What is the level of customer service that I receive when I walk in? Are people astute to the fact that I'm standing there? Do they, do they really go out of my way to help me? Or am I sitting for long periods of time waiting to be serviced? Um, when I talk to a teacher, are they defensive on the front end? Or are they really concerned as much as I am because they're vested in my child's well-being and education? Are we on the same page? So when you ask parents these type of questions, you're going to get some very, very honest answers. But what do you do with those answers? You have to hold people accountable. See, in higher ed, it's a direct correlation to enrollment to jobs. When we don't have students, we don't teach classes. It's that simple. And, and it's taken a long time for K-12 to get on board with that philosophy that when you run parents away and you don't have students, eventually teachers will lose jobs and as well as administrators. It's just a natural flow of how it works. Um, so I think that we need to do a better job of valuing the commodity, valuing it. Like a very high value needs to go on it um, because that's why we, that's why we're here. We serve no other purpose in schools, but the well-being of children. And if we're not there for that, why are we there? Absolutely. So speaking of the well-being of children, uh, Dr. Rogers, let's dispel the myth because there's a myth uh, out there. It's a reality for some, uh, but most, most it's a myth. The district a couple years ago decided that they would bring in deans of culture and climate. And now what we're looking at is um, there's almost a, there's a dean in every. And the overall arching theme historically is that the dean is the person that kicks everybody out. Right. <laughs> the dean is the person that's right. just continuously uh, when you when you get a chance to meet, particularly uh, sometimes parents who may have not had a pleasant experience in school and it's their first time in our building. I know for me, when I say, hi, I'm the Dean. Oh, you the Dean. <laughs> and right. then they, they come to realize that our approach is different, but how has the, the approach now that we are being asked to take that we take, how does that uh, pass with what people used to know as the Dean, just the person who handles discipline without, based upon what the, as you say, as education changes, the dynamic of that position has also changed. So as a dean, what do you do on a daily basis, brother? Run your day down for me. Okay, so so let me go back a little bit because I want to address something you said, then I'll, I'll jump on that. So 
I have, as you, have interacted. There are a hundred of us in the dish. There are a hundred deans. I've interacted with just about all of them. Um, and I can say, I'll put myself out on a limb and say that every dean in this, our deans are compassionate. They care about children. They are, they are accountable. They are effective. Um, and they truly do care. They are not punitive people by nature. They are restorative people by nature. Um, and it is amazing that a hundred people um, were picked who, who most of them didn't know each other, but they share those certain characteristics and traits. I mean, it's just amazing that it happened that way. So I say that to say that, you know, what happens though sometimes is that, you know, the dean's job is to establish rapport with parents, establish rapport with students, because they do handle 90 to 95% of the discipline issues in the building. So automatically they're going to establish those relationships. And if you're a smart dean, you're going to keep those transactions to a certain amount of time because you understand how things can kind of spiral out of control, especially when you have people who are irate and upset. So you try to, you, you manage, you learn how to manage conflict, manage your time to get effective results because ultimately you want to create a win-win relationship in every type of situation, right? But the downfall of that is the dean sometimes becomes the person that the parents will ask to see. Or the parents will say, hey, I'm here to see the dean. That's and right. It's like, it's like, no, no, no. You, you can't circumvent the office. Like, you got to come here or like, I'm gonna, I want to I wanna speak with the dean about this. Well, no. So the dean becomes, in, in some people's eyes, like the superstar. But that's not what it is. The dean, the dean's role is doing exactly what you intended for it to do. When we put the egos and things aside, you find out that the dean is doing exactly what was written to be done, right? To manage discipline and everything that comes with it. So instead of sometimes looking at it as a godsend or a gift to relieve that burden of having to do that, it sometimes is looked at as, hey, well, you know, I don't, why am I, why am I sharing this? Or, or what's going on? Or why do you need to spotlight? Or, I'm not asking for it. I'm just doing my job. That's what I'm paid to do. Um, <laughs> You know, so I think in the second part of your question was what again, Ibrahim? No, no. Let's pause there for a moment before we jump to that. Because the dean in the building is the only person that has to uh, has vertical communication, horizontal responsibilities and also in some ways. And I know that as administrators, uh, we don't technically have. Uh, a staff that reports to us, but we do have children that come and they want to consume and invest their time with us. So I say it like this, the Dean is responsible for administering district directives. The Dean is also responsible for facilitating the principal's vision and assistant. The Dean is also responsible for assisting the assistant principal. The Dean is there to support the teachers the dean is there to support the the uh, other support staff. The dean is also there to support the children. Uh, the dean is there to support the parents. So, like this, this is an all-encompassing role that at times becomes all things to all people, right? Uh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, and so it is one of those uh, you have to have like a fluid to be a fluidity to uh, the level of engagement. Uh, speaking to people in language that they understand, 
uh, being able to relate to people where they are, uh, being able to, to process the administrative portion of it, where you have the paperwork. And so it is it is more than a notion. So I, I only wanted to break that down, uh, Dr. Rogers, because in the dean's role, I want to dispel the misconception that the dean comes into the building looking for problems. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, you know, you know, listen, here's, here's what's funny. We were talking the other day and we were explaining to somebody and I, I said, you know, the funny thing is for me in my environment, in my culture, most of what I deal with is what happened outside that comes to me and lands on my doorstep in the morning. It didn't happen there. It didn't start there. It started at home. It started on social media. It started on TikTok, anywhere but the building. Rarely do I have issues to start right in front of me that I can't trace back to something that happened the night before. Okay. So no, we're not, I don't come into the building looking to, to be punitive with anybody. (laughs) Um, um, I come into the building looking to be accountable and making my presence known that I'm here um, not not to intimidate, but I'm here to support. So so that's that's the reason why I'm there. Uh, but when things happen, like everybody else, I have to be accountable. And, and that means oftentimes, you know, being punitive. Um, but we are doing a very good job in our culture of trying to change and see things through a different lens and trying to be a little more, a lot more restorative. Let me say a lot more restorative and a lot less punitive um, because we know in the end, that's what's going to be effective and that's what's going to keep our students with us. And that's what's going to increase our graduation graduation rates, increase our attendance rates. And it's going to work. It has proven that it is effective and it works. So, um, I mean, that's, that's pretty much where we are. You know, I, I would like to see us, um, and the district is doing a good job of trying to move in that way. But, you know, there are a lot of people who have this old school mentality that says, you know, every time we deal with a kid, we have to kick them out. We have to send them home. No, no, we don't. There there are a lot of times where I read direct behavior every single day. Um, And it's because, again, Chris Rogers, the person, is able to talk to the parent and able to talk to the student to get an understanding. When parents come in the building, I I, I never introduce myself as Dr. Rogers. They don't even know I'm a doctor until somebody calls me that. I walk up to them and say, hey, I'm Chris Rogers. How you doing? I'm the dean. And, and that immediately, that that's what I, I want the walls and the defensive walls to be down. I don't want to deal with, I don't want to deal with them feeling uh, some type of way because they, they encounter a title and not a human being. That's good. All right. So I'm Chris Rogers. How you doing? I'm the dean. Let's walk down to my office. Let's talk about this down in my office. I want to help you. Let's talk, let's talk down the hallway. Right. And so what I, what I realized is that that kills all the defense. That kills everything. We're on the same level. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is put our heads together to come up with some type of resolution to keep the child in school, to keep them learning. And that's really what it is. That's when you, when you take all the personal stuff out of it, everything else, the main goal is to keep them in school and to keep them learning. That's, that's the, that's the bottom line. Absolutely. Now let's, let's talk about it because you also are an entrepreneur. So talk, yeah. talk to me about your business. So I'm a dissertation editor. I have a business called Scholarly Edits, and I edit dissertations, manuscripts, books, anything, anything. So, so, so far, actually, I just had a milestone where I had, well, my clients, 100 clients uh, received IRB 
uh, approval. So IRB is the process that you have to go through um, to get approval to interview human subjects. So I was able to reach that milestone. I was very happy about it. Um, many of my pl- my clients come from all over the country. I, I have clients to call me from Alabama, Louisiana, Texas. Um, I've had a, a client recently from overseas. Uh, so I get clients from all over the place because there are a lot of people who are trying to pursue a doctorate degree. Um, but when they call me, what they get is a little more than what they pay for because I like to ghost mentor them. I like to talk to them. I like to explain the process to them. Sometimes their chairs are just not real good communicators. So they're confused. And it's bad to be confused at the doctoral level because it's a it's a very um, um, high financial investment uh, and, and in addition to the time. So you really want some proper direction when you're spending $60,000 to spend in four years of your life. So I try to I try to provide them with that coaching and that mentoring when they call me in addition to editing their paper. So I like for them to, to understand. I want to empower them. It's one thing for me to edit your work and edit your writing, but it's another thing that if you can walk away from me after I've done the work and you know how to put together something that's grammatically correct, that conforms to APA standards, um, that meets the bar, that, then I've empowered you at that point. You know, um, One of my goals were, was when I first started the business, um, my, I was the only African-American in my cohort. Uh, when I when I graduated from University of Phoenix, um, and I looked around when we marched everybody in, we the doctoral candidates marched in first at Fort Field. Uh, there were two of us who were African American. We actually graduated from high school together, and we got our doctors together. We've been friends for thirty years, and everybody else was um, were not African American. You know, they were a mixture of you know Middle Eastern. Caucasian. And so, you know, I said, when I started the editing business, I said, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to empower and help as many African-American people who choose to earn a doctorate degree. I want to help them do that. Um, it, it's very important that we have um, people in our community that have achieved that goal, not for the sake of saying, I have a PhD and I'm a doctor, but for the fact that you can contribute to the scholarly community. Um, that you can do research, that you can do those things that PhDs should do in order to help our communities grow and prosper. So that's what it's about. You know, having a PhD is okay, but if you're not using that, if you're not using that credential to move our people forward, then what is it for? So I use mine to assist as many people as humanly possible. Yeah, I I got a chance to actually I was uh, going through Facebook and I saw one of your clients, which actually happened to be uh, one of my former co-workers. And I got a chance to hear her giving you a rave review about just helping to alleviate some of the stress and the pressure uh, that comes from, you know, pursuing the doctorate. Uh, I got a chance to kind of see her journey through. Uh, her trying to obtain her doctorate, or not trying to obtain her doctorate, but the process of obtaining her doctorate, and from the financial piece you spoke of to the time, uh, you know, the the time consumption that occurs in the process, and to hear her talk about how you were able to just come in and help lift the burden, uh, it restored her confidence, uh, it gave her more assurance, uh, it encouraged her, empowered her. 
So I got a chance to see, although I knew you personally, yeah. I got a chance to see the results of your work uh, shine through someone else's testimony. So salute to you, my brother. And you said that you, you, you got your 90th person. Yeah. Yeah. Actually it's not yet. 90, 90, 90 people have um, received IRB approval, 90. Uh, but I've been doing this since actually I started uh, when I graduated from university of Phoenix, my dissertation chair, we published two or three articles together. She had an editing business. And she says, you know, I edited my own dissertation because I was laid off. I couldn't afford an editor. So I edited. She said, well, you know, Christopher, you have a you have a skill, you know, you can do this. So why don't you why don't you join my team of editors? Let's see how this works out. So I probably edited probably 30 or 40 dissertations before I made one dollar. <laughs> it was like, hey, listen, you're on a trial run. You know, we're going to put you through the fire and see what you can do. And I mean, the timelines were ridiculous. Sometimes it was like, hey, here's a five, here's a five chapter dissertation, 160 pages. It's Wednesday. We need it back Sunday. Um, like, OK, <laughs> so, you know, and you have to read it and you can't just go through somebody's stuff and just start marking it up. So you, so I had to read every single one, um, you know, to be able to to change the narrative in it or adjust it, the wording or do whatever I need to do to it. Um, you know, so when just, just maybe last year, um, is when I think a lot of people reached out to me a lot more, um, you know, and sometimes I'm sitting with my fiance and, and she's like, Hey, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. You know, I said, listen, this client, they need this paper tomorrow. They got a deadline. Um, so they have to have it, you know, and doctoral deadlines are, are, you know, you have to adhere to them. Some a lot of times. So just being able to help is 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 I really enjoy when I see testimonies like that of people saying, hey, somebody helped me achieve my goal, you know, um, because I had somebody to help me. I didn't do it by myself at all. I think that that's phenomenal. Uh, I don't want to just glaze over the process that you took, though, because you said before you earned one dime, you had helped to edit 30 or 40 dissertations. Not and, help, not help to edit. She sent it to me and said, "You're on your own." Okay, so you <laughs> edited, done. yeah, you edited thirty to forty dissertations before you even earned one dime. But I guarantee right. you that going over those thirty or forty, that it helped you become more efficient, more effective. It honed, uh, it gave you more experience. So that when you got the chance to, when you started the, your own business, the value that you be, you added to your client, your customer was so immense that people couldn't help but flood your line. So you said in 2013, you graduated with your doctorate, right? Correct. So in a matter of seven years, you've got 90 people approved. 90. That That's amazing. Let's, let's pause and... Thank, Thank you. God. Thank yeah, you. Thank that's you. amazing. Good job, Thank man. Yeah, Thank great you. job. And um, I think and that it that, wasn't it wasn't easy. <laughs> oh, I, listen, that's, that's what I know. What we're saying in this little matter of moments, like, no, this is a process with each person. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. for them to get approved, and let's let's frame it, let's contextualize it. If only two percent across the world, two percent of people have a PhD, a doctorate, and you were able to get 90 people approved to go through the process, 
that that stands to be commended. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it and it, it did um, the time I spent with my mentor and the time I spent on my own. You know, sometimes, you know, you just, you know, you get those feelings like my head feels like it's about to explode because it's so much going on in there. Right. And it's so much you have to know. And, you know, when you my business is not one of those businesses where you walk in the store and say, hey, I need two X. OK, I have somebody that calls me. They may see my face um, in this world where people are, you know, just hosting websites, committing fraud, just taking people's money. You know, they'll see my face and they'll call me and say, hey, I need an editor. So oftentimes I wind up seriously talking to a customer for almost an hour on the phone, just reassuring them I'm who I am. These are my credentials. This is what I can do. And then they ask me questions and I have, they're vetting me. So I have to really know the difference between quantitative and qualitative. What's correlational? Um, You know, what's, you know, I I have to know all of these things um, because when they're seeking that help, the only thing that's going to assure them is they're talking to somebody who knows as much or more than they do. Um, so sometimes, yeah, it's, it's an hour to two hour conversation and they say, Hey, okay, I know, you know what you know. So I'm ready to move forward and it's okay because I want them to be confident. I want them to be confident and they're spending their money. It's their hard earned money. I want them to be confident, but you know, but I've had customers who, or I've seen people in Facebook groups who they'll go to a website where they've never even seen a person. They see no one. They'll swipe their credit card for $1,500 and they'll go ahead and pay it and they get the paper back and the paper isn't a quality at all for them to be able to be approved to graduate. Where for what I do, my rates are, I think, the best in the business for what I, for what I can offer and what I do. Excellent. So why don't you go ahead and give them your social media handles and websites so they can get in touch with you. Anybody that is on the doctoral sure. journey, where can they find you? Absolutely. So they can find me at, on Facebook. Um, it's Dr. Rogers. Um, that's, that's my username on Facebook, Dr. Christopher Rogers. And it's R-O-D-G-E-R-S. Um, but listen, they can call my phone. 313-207-6162. They can text me. Uh, I answer my phone whenever it rings. I respond to texts and emails because um, quickly because it's a business. And I want people to know, listen, I've talked to people who've lost customers because they didn't answer the phone. And people just, you know, in this business, when people are trying to graduate and they're trying to find somebody to take care of it because they're pressed against the wall, they need a response quickly. And I'm that quick response. So my number is 313-207-6162. That's Scholarly Edits. So listen, man, I'm definitely going to be in touch with you. You and I have already talked about this. Uh, You know, I am going to pursue my doctorate in in the future uh, and we're in touch. So but I definitely will be having this discussion with you and uh, using your services so that uh, I can go ahead and be of a greater service to my community as Dr. Andre Ebron. It's going to happen, my brother. It's going to happen. Absolutely. And you know, you know what? I, I just had a talk with somebody the other day who wants to pursue a doctorate degree. And I asked them, a matter of fact, she's a dean. And she says, you know, actually I had two deans. I had one call me tonight who wanted some assistance with something. And then I had another dean that called me and said, well, you know, listen, I'm, I'm interested in pursuing a PhD. Um, you know, what can you tell me? And I asked the person very pointedly, what, what do you want it for? What are you trying to get a doctorate for? 
And I said, well, listen, she said, well, why did you receive? Why did you pursue one? And I said, it was for personal edification. Um, I had no, it wasn't about the money for me. I, I didn't earn a PhD to say, hey, well, as soon as I get my doctorate degree, I'm going to automatically make $200,000 a year. I'm going to make $120,000. It's, it's unrealistic in, in this particular time. You know, if you're going to earn a doctorate degree, for me, when I hear people say, I want to contribute to the scholarly community, I want to do research, I want to better provide a better world for my people and for others. That is what I think the true significance is of earning a doctorate degree. When you, even when you go back to ancient Greek all the way till now and you see the, those, those people who were scholars, they contributed to research and, and, and literature to move the world forward. That was the purpose for them getting that degree. It had nothing to do with financial gain. It, it, was, it was personal edification and being able to contribute to the world in a global sense. And, and so when, you, when your only desire is to earn a doctorate degree simply for the fact of saying, I think I'm going to make more money, it's going to be a very hard journey for you because those programs are they have weed out classes. I mean, they're, they're designed to weed people out who are not there for the right reason. And that's why only 2% of the world has it. <laughs> it's many people who start those journeys and they don't finish them. And, and sometimes it's for financial reasons. The cost sometimes is ridiculous depending on where you're earning a degree from. But at the end of the day, you know, um, it's, it's a very tough journey. It, it really is. And, and you have to have a certain level of investment. Hey, listen, when I started my doctoral program, I was working a full-time job. I came home. Uh, I probably wrote 40, 50 papers throughout the whole process of earning that degree. In addition to writing a dissertation, I had three residencies. Every year I had to go to residency out of town. I mean, it's, it's, it's a process and it's a family degree. The doctorate degree is truly a family degree. Because everybody in your family is going <laughs> to burden of you earning that degree because it's going to take time away from a lot of things. And you have to learn how to say, OK, well, I'm going to do all my homework on Friday and then I'll do family on Sunday. I go to church on Sunday. You know, you, you find your niche and how you can navigate and get things done because, you know, um, it, doctoral degrees are not about knowledge. It's about time management. <laughs> How do you manage your time? You know, how, how do you navigate that? Um, what what are you willing to sacrifice to put aside for a while to to accomplish this task and go back and pick that up later? Because you only have a certain amount of time per day. You can't squeeze everything into a day. So and the work is going to demand your attention. It, it's 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 no way around that. <laughs> so hats off to people who want to pursue it. I never want to discourage people from doing it. But even when I talk to my clients, I'm a realist about, you know, what it takes, what the journey is about, um, because it's, it's a $60,000 investment, you know, and, and, and that's minimum. And that was for me in 2008, when I enrolled at Phoenix in 2008, it was 60 grand. I, I don't know what it is now, but uh, I'm sure it's more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, <clears throat> we have shared uh, some great nuggets here. Uh, and I think what just taking away, I always give a challenge to all of my guests, right? right. And so since you are a scholar in your own right, uh, a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, I won't hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> you <know? laughs> but uh, 
I would love for you to create some type of uh, literature uh, that, that centers around time management, specifically for doctoral candidates. Because I think that that, for me, I remember when I first started, uh, I completed L1 of law school. Mm-hmm. And the first, when you, the first class you have, everybody's in the room and they tell you to look around. And then they ask the question, how many of you all are married? And then they say, well, according to the st- statistics, 50% of you all will be divorced. You know, uh, <laughs> how many of you all have children? So they go through this whole long list, right? And I remember um, one of my uh, contracts teachers, he was teaching contracts. And he talked about when he first went to law school years ago, uh, his professor, when he looked, laid eyes on him, flicked him. Now I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to date him to let you know how how long back this was, flipped him a nickel and told him to go to the payphone and call his people and tell them that he needed to come back <laughs> because he wasn't committed enough to see it through. Of course, because he ended up being my professor, he saw it through. But I would love uh, for you to come up with something, man, uh, that helps people uh, know. And that might be some some IP for you, <laughs> you know, however you work that out. But, Absolutely. Uh, helping people to manage their time. I think that that across the board could be uh, extremely helpful for all. So it would be uh, managing your time equals managing your life. Uh, You know, doctoral preparation by Dr. Christopher Rogers. You know, just give me me credit for the title. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny because one of the things that they always say to you is if you get a doctorate degree, you should be published. So what I'm finding is a lot of people who earn doctorate degrees, particularly my clients, while I'm editing their paper, they're asking me or inquiring about how can I help them get published, okay? Uh, be- because they understand that being published means you are contributing to the scholarly community. You are actually making a contribution. You've done some research, you see things through a different lens and you're making a substantial contribution, you know, because you don't know who's gonna read it, you don't know who it's going to touch. So that's why I say, you know, sometimes when you get these degrees, I think it's a, my whole scenario is planned out. Um, From the time that I, when I worked at Airmark, I was a facility manager. Um, We were closing a hundred buildings in the district. Um, Teachers were, you know, and pushed out because schools were closing. So teachers were being repositioned and all of that. And so when I started my journey, I knew what contribution I wanted to make. Um, and what kind of research I wanted to do. And ultimately I wound up doing research on the influence of uh, staff training and mentoring on novice teacher attrition because teachers were leaving the profession, you know, after three years in the classroom, they were gone, they were leaving. So what was driving these people out of the classroom? And, and, and I wanted to contribute that to the scholarly community. All started from just being in a position where I could actually see what was happening from a business side and then being able to say, okay, this is what I want to do and this is the contribution I want to make. So, you know, you have to look at, you should be thinking about the research that you want to do from the day you enroll. You know, what is, your, what is going to be your contribution to society when this is all said and done as a doctoral candidate and then as a doctor and as a doctor, what is going to be your contribution? And, and, and if you go in and you, you don't even have an understanding of that, 
or you don't have a, an idea at all about that, then it tends to be a little, a little frustrating. It really does. All right. So listen, Dr. Rogers, we are at the conclusion of this great interview. Uh, I'm right. looking forward to the publication. I appreciate your time. Why don't you go ahead <laughs> and uh, drop your information again for those who are on the doc doctoral journey. Someone wants to get in touch with you because they have questions or curiosity about, um, you know, doing their doctorate. Or if someone is right at the brink or the threshold and they're saying, listen, I need somebody to edit my paper like tomorrow, you know, uh, oh, to get in touch with you. How I'm can ready. they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So my email is rogers, R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot Christopher A at, I'm sorry, at gmail.com. My cell number is 313-207-6162. And I'm on Facebook, Dr. Christopher Rogers. And it's it's a scholarly edits Facebook page as well. Excellent. Excellent. Again, thank you, my brother. As I always tell the drawing board nation, your future is not behind you. It is not before you. It is within you. And I'm Andre Ebron here with the doctor for Christ Christopher A. Rogers. God bless you, bro. Thank you, bro. Yes, sir.